And it was from there that I saw and became part of this interactive web that binds us all. It looked like trillions and trillions and trillions of neurons that were woven together in the nucleus of each neuron. I saw like a little spark of light, or what I've come to understand as a quark of light. These quarks and these neurons were woven together, creating this tapestry of twinkling lights that seemed to hang on the ceiling of the universe. And I saw that we were all connected and that we were all one. And that if I hurt myself while I was in that place, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I loved, the light would spread. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado, and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado, and as always, I'm so happy you're here. Today on the show, I'm welcoming a one-of-a-kind guest, a two-time near-death experiencer who's also a heart transplant recipient. Rob A. Gentile is the son of Italian immigrants. He grew up in Pennsylvania, where his father worked in a steel mill. Rob also works in the steel industry as a sales rep, and he's been married to Melanie for more than 30 years. Together, they've devoted themselves to their daughter with special needs, Maria. Maria's in her 20s, and she has Rett syndrome. Rob calls Maria the hero of my life, and he tells me in our conversation that she's his greatest teacher. Yet throughout her childhood, he grappled with very difficult questions about the suffering of children and why that has to be. Answers came in an unexpected way. At age 56, Rob had a massive heart attack. He flatlined, had a near-death experience, encountered his late brother-in-law in the experience. That was the opening of a journey that led to his spiritual awakening. So four months after that, while awaiting his donor heart, he had yet another NDE, a profound and powerful encounter that transformed his life. Rob came back with beautiful understandings about the cosmically unified nature of God and ultimate reality, which he shares in his newly released book, Quarks of Light, which also details the fascinating story of how Rob met the family of Molly, the young woman who donated her heart, and the many synchronicities that bind the two families. Getting to know Molly, whose heart beats within his body, has compelled Rob to help raise awareness of suicide prevention. Now, Rob's story does include references to suicide. If you need support and you're in Australia, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in other countries, please seek services that are relevant to where you're living. For now, please settle in to enjoy my conversation with Rob A. Gentile. There's so much he shares 
from the knowledge he gained about our ultimate unity and interconnectedness to his life-changing understanding about the power of a single act and his timely reminder about the significance of our relationships. This is one episode that might just give you a new heart too. Hello, Rob, and welcome to Spirit Sisters. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's so lovely to have you, and I think that makes you an honorary spirit brother. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, it's so lovely to, to have you on the show. Now, I have read your book, Quarks of Light, and as I mentioned to you, I could not stop taking notes. I took about five pages of notes. I didn't want to overlook or forget anything. And I think I might have done that whether I was interviewing you or not, Rob. It's that kind of book. So there are so many intriguing strands to your story, but I'd like to begin with the medical emergency that took you to the very edge of death. And that was on January 26, 2016. And you were recovering from a rel- what sounded like a relatively minor procedure. Is that right, Rob? Yes, that's right. I mean, I've always taken care of myself. I've been a healthy guy. I've always exercised. And I had uh, some bone spurs on my neck that were creating, you know, some pain in my body. And uh, I had gone actually back to my hometown of Pennsylvania to have the surgery from a very famous Korean doctor who uses a special surgery. He goes in through the front of the neck instead of going back through the, you know, the back of the neck and having diffused discs. So it was just a one day outpatient surgery uh, where they go in and they drill out the spurs and sew you up. There's a little scar there and send you on your way. And uh, I returned home to North Carolina and four days after the surgery, and the theory is from my heart surgeon that more than likely I threw a a blood clot. But um, at about 11 p.m. in my bed, four days later, I had a massive heart attack out of nowhere. And um, my wife called 911. I was rushed to the hospital, which is uh, only about three miles from my home here, thank goodness. But I don't remember anything about that. I was in such pain that uh, I don't remember the night or the screaming or, or anything. But what, what happened was, is that when I got to the hospital, they uh, tried to give me some things to stabilize me. They thought it was probably a heart attack. They were unsure at that point. And I was laying on the gurney, a nurse was there along with my wife. And all of a sudden, my wife uh, mentions that it's kind of like out of the movie, The Exorcist. I sprang forward onto the gurney like someone had grabbed me by my shirt and just pulled me forward with great force. Like they were trying to get my attention. And I screamed out my brother-in-law's nickname. His nickname was Frosty. My eyes opened wide and I screamed his name and I just fell backwards and collapsed onto the gurney. And that's when I flatlined, code blue rang out in the hospital and in rushed a team of doctors and began to work on me. I was, uh, they, were, they were unable to resuscitate me. I was uh, unconscious for 20 minutes, medical records show. And they had tried everything, um, CPR, they had tried shocking my heart back. They stuck needles in my heart with epinephrine and I was not responding. So I was clinically dead for 20 minutes. The cardiologist was not in the hospital that time. He was actually in route. And when he got there, uh, he did what they call emergency uh, catheterization. He found the blockage in my widow maker. He put in two stints. 
but deep, deep damage had already been done to my heart. I immediately went into cardiogenic shock. They intubated me and I slipped into a four day coma. So that was the beginning. <laughs> that, and that's only the beginning, my goodness. And from here, we, we can go in so many different directions, but ultimately that crisis launched you into what you describe in the book as the furnace of affliction that encompassed physical, spiritual, emotional anguish. Yet you had some profound realisations in this time, didn't you, Rob, about how you'd taken your body and your health for granted and how there was a reason you were brought back. But even before you answer that, I want you to tell us a little bit more about Frosty and the meaning of that message and everything that happened when you awoke from your four-day coma. So my brother-in-law, Frosty, unfortunately, had committed suicide seven weeks before I died that night. And his mother had called me um, in the middle of the night when he had taken his own life. And I had gone up into, he was, he was going through a divorce. His life was unraveling. There was a lot of things happening. Um, and he, uh, he had taken some drugs that night. He had been clean for many, 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 many years. And he had taken some street drugs it was you know, coming to the end of the year, he was going through a divorce, he couldn't pay for his daughter's college, he was losing his business, all these crazy things were happening. So his mother called me and I went up into his room seven times to pick through a, a rather gory scene at his mother's request and his father's request to try and find a journal with some of his notes in it to give you know, some, some meaning or solace to the family as to why he would have done such a thing. And ironically, on my seventh trip up into the room, I found a journal. I was able to give that to the family. And it was curious that that was my first encounter with a spirit because what Frosty had told me, and you know, no one knows these things really, if he had told me while I was in my coma or he had told me seconds before I flatlined, which is my wife thinks he came to me right before I flatlined because she was screaming to, to, you know, she was screaming in terror saying, no, 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 don't go to Frosty. Because, you know, a, a lot of times we know that spirit comes from the other side to usher you into the other dimension. And that's what my wife was frightened of. So that's probably when Frosty came to me, but I had no idea that I had died. I had no idea that Frosty came to me, but when I came out of coma, I began to recall these things and it was crystal clear what Frosty had told me. He told me, I've made a big mess out of things and I need you to go back and help clean things up, but tell my family I'm in a good place. And for me, having been raised a Catholic, that was a mortal sin that, you know, if someone took their own life, that there was no coming back, it was straight to hell and, you know, all those things. Um, so that was kind of like, the opening of Pandora's box for me spiritually because, and it began to expand my mind as to what possibilities there were outside of the assumptions that I had made about God's spirit, all of these rules and regulations that sometimes religion puts on us. Um, so that was, that was the beginning of the journey. When I woke up from my coma, my heart was completely destroyed. And that's when I was told that I would need a heart transplant to survive. Uh, but before I left, they put a port in my chest where they dripped medicine on my heart to keep it beating, actually, because there was nothing left of it. The doctor called it STP for the heart, like a, it would put in a car to make it run better. 
but it, the, the, the medicine wears the heart out faster. So the clock already started ticking the day I came out of my coma. And then they strapped me in this, this defibrillator vest that when my, so when my heart went out again, this thing would shock me back to life. So I, I had, I left the hospital with uh, this battery pack hanging off my right shoulder um, and this defibrillator vest, which looked like a, a, a bulletproof vest that a policeman would wear. And then I had this pump that would pump medicine onto my heart every actually 60 seconds to keep the thing pumping. So I was a zombie walking around. And what's so fascinating about uh, the experience with Frosty, and it's, it's quite chilling and in, in a beautiful way, really, is that there is such a connection with the, the donor heart that you would eventually come to receive and the work that you, I guess, are doing uh, in terms of suicide awareness, prevent, suicide prevention awareness, just by the yes. very fact of your story. Your story tells an amazing story about life and its yes. preciousness. So it's quite beautiful, Rob. And yes, the way you describe in the book about the misery, I guess it, it was just a miserable existence for a while there. In March 2016, you would go on to find out that you did need a new heart. And gosh, it was hard for you to walk around to exist with, this, with all this machinery on you. And you describe that in the book. And there's also an amazing parallel between that suffering and what you came to understand about your lovely daughter and all of her suffering all throughout her life as well. Yes, yes, very much so. What it taught me, Corina, was that we take, we take our health for granted um, and we take these things for granted in our life. And it was kind of interesting that here I am, a father with a special needs child whose total care can't walk, talk, feed herself. And, and all of a sudden I had special needs and I was put in that position to learn very, very important lessons in my life. Um, and, you know, it was humbling to go to the rehab center and be around people that were just like me, who had catastrophic events happen to them in their life. And here they are, all these unfortunate souls, you know, trying to recover as much as they can. And that's why I write in the book that, that our health really is the linchpin to everything in our you know, in our lives, because if we don't take care of it, although I've come to understand that we are spiritual beings, but while we're here, we have to take care of this fragile clay vessel, this, you know, this miraculous machine that only divine intelligence could have designed. We have to care for it. We're called to care for it. So when I, so when I lost all of that, you know, for the first time in my life, I was forced to slow down and come to the realization that I've been moving in a direction where I really wasn't living life at all. I was just moving at a very fast pace, always worried about uh, the things that we're all worried about, you know, security, money, taking care of our family, how we're going to do it. And we lose, we lose sight of what's really important, the things that are free in life, you know, like mm -hmm. our health mm -hmm. and the, the relationships that we, that we have with one another. Mm. And I guess for you, those, those concerns of, of work and money and all of that were amplified because of your special needs daughter and because, you know, I guess 100% of the time, Rob, you were just so concerned about making sure that, and especially once you were so, so very ill, making sure that they were okay as well. 
You know? Right, right. My yeah. greatest, my greatest fear had always been, and that's why, you know, I worked so hard um, that, that Maria would be institutionalized, that somehow I would lose my job and I wasn't, but I wouldn't be able to care for her. So that was, that was my greatest fear that would, you know, drive me night and day to, to, to work so hard and ignore everything else. But I learned in the end that um, that certainly didn't pay off. That strategy wasn't any good at all. <laughs> yeah. And you write very poignantly about that in the book. There's a moment where you say that you walked into your house and realized that so much had been neglected. The home was neglected, your, but more importantly, the relationships within it because you'd been so focused on this, this narrow one track of must work, must bring in the income. It's, yes, it's a powerful work. lesson. Yes, exactly. You're right. I mean, not only was, you know, the home looks like a hospital really, instead of a, a the house looks like a hospital instead of a home with all these machines that we do to keep Maria, you know, from, from deteriorating. But, but most importantly, as you say, the relationships that are ignored um, through that process and my wife and I isolated ourselves because Maria has a seizure disorder. And it seemed like no matter what we did, no matter where we went, you know, we would get ambushed by a medical emergency and end up in a hospital somewhere. And so we, we learned to, um, by default, just draw ourselves in and kind of isolate ourselves from the world, which wasn't the thing to do. Mm. And so as you're having these realizations, just after this this medical crisis that has has ignited all of this, you also had understandings about what you'd missed out on, and you began to look at life in a new way, like suddenly with new eyes, looking at spring burgeoning outside your window. Yes, you know that's, um, and, and this is where the transition actually started to to happen for me. You know, I would go outside on my patio, my back patio, and read and. You know, suddenly, uh, because I was forced to stop, mm -hmm. you know, I would look down and I would see these little ants running around, bathed in the sun, you know, going about their business, uh, making homes. And I, for the first time, I would sense, you know, the wind rustling through the leaves. And um, it was, uh, it was like, in those moments, everything was in slow motion. And I began to and I'd always, I'd always loved nature, but I'd lost sight of those things. It, you know, sometimes between work and the, the vicissitudes of life that, that punish us all sometimes, you know, we lose track of these things. But the answers are typically right in front of us because it's also those things that, that fill up our gas tank, as it were, and, and you know, nourish us. And they're neglected. So that, that period taught me to reconnect with the simple things around me. Um, and I understood that like when I was in rehab, because when I first came out of my coma, my arms were paralyzed. I couldn't even scratch my nose. And just to be able to hold a spoon again and feed myself, um, you know, was just a, a miraculous thing. For me, reading the book, it almost read like it was some kind of terrifying roller coaster ride. The medical aspect of your of what you're dealing with is there. Yes. You, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer and hit with pneumonia. And that led to further reflections and very deep ones about the role of suffering in our lives. And you'd, yes. you'd had already a prime you know, front seat position to that, seeing and caring for your daughter, Maria. 
who has Rett syndrome. And um, you wrote something that I noted down that suffering, and this is your quote, peels you back like an onion and what you find at the core is your true authentic self where God resides. Can mm. you share a little bit about that and the role of suffering in our lives and what it can uncover in us? Sure. I, I've come to understand that, that suffering, the purpose of it is, number one, to demolish the ego. The ego, is, it's an acronym for edges God out. Because the ego gets in the way. You've, we've all seen it with you know, athletes and actors and these, some of these other people. They start out very humble and it seems that they, they wanna express this gift that they have with the world. And then the ego gets in the way and they seem to lose, they lose sight of themselves. Um, and that suffering forces you to demolish the ego. And when you demolish the ego and you get into this place of suffering or what I call the furnace of affliction, then something magical begins to happen in regards to understanding that your, your identity comes from God and you learn, to, you learn to depend on God more when you go through these periods of suffering. And when you start to depend on God, you you know, for, for most of my adult life, when, after Maria got sick, you know, it was the ego told me that it was me that had to heal her. It was only my responsibility. And if I didn't, then I was a failure. You know, that's how the ego tricks us into believing these things when actually I can't heal anybody. Uh, so this, this, this peeling, the, the, these layers that we, we put on ourselves of who we think we are, um, and who we think our identity is really gets drilled down to the core of our being. And we realize that our identity comes from, from God and suffering is a way to depend on him and to learn how to focus on what's important in our lives. And that's where that whole furnace of affliction uh, came into play in my life personally. Thank you for that. And you, you've got an amazing friend who is referenced in the book called The Rev, the, short for The Reverend. And he, yeah, yeah. he was instrumental in reminding you of this as well. And, well, when you came back to life after being, you know, unconscious, clinically dead, I guess, for 20 minutes, and you were trying to, to reason, trying to understand why you'd come back, especially when you were so, so very sick and suffering so much. I think it was The Rev, Rob, if I'm not mistaken, who reminded you of this tendency of yours to be this extremely self-reliant person and to think right. that you could do it all and that perhaps part of the purpose of you coming back was to learn otherwise. Yeah, very much so. You know, part of the, per part of the reason that uh, I believe that I, was, that I came back uh, not only was to share the second part of my journey, the second near-death experience that I had, but the Rev, when he was praying for me, when I died that night, it was placed on his spirit that one of the reasons that I came back, not only to take care of, finish taking care of Maria and my, and my wife and providing, was also to fulfill my purpose. And purpose is a very tricky thing. Uh, it's still, it's very difficult for us to grasp. But what I've come to understand about purpose is that we all, even though most human beings struggle with it and they don't think that they have a purpose, we all have a purpose. 
And if that purpose is not fulfilled, we don't become everything that we were created to be. And there's a lot of things that get in the way of purpose. You know, sometimes the, the vicissitudes of life beat us down. We turn to alcohol or we turn to whatever vices that we turn to and it dims our light. And when it dims our light and we can't fulfill our purpose, then we can't express what we were given to express in spirit. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, you because, totally are. Yep. Okay, good. Because yep. I, came to, I came to understand that the only way that God experiences life is through us. God both expresses and experiences life through us. And when we come here, we have a specific thing that we're to learn and to accomplish. And, you know, I, that is the greatest gift about me being able to return um, to fulfill that. And honestly, Karina, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that is. <laughs> but, but and, and, I, and I don't know that any of us that one day, all of a sudden, we get that big aha moment that, hey, this is my purpose. Some people do. But for the rest of us, I think that, you know, it's a constant struggle. Um, mm. We go down a path sometimes, and we begin to recognize, and I've been down many, that, hey, maybe this isn't what I want to do. And then we, you know, we kind of recoup and then we figure out we want to go in another direction. Uh, but, you know, here I am. I mean, I died at 56. I'm 61 now. And I'm convinced that probably a big part of my purpose was to write this book and to express what it is that I learned through my near-death experiences and what I learned about the value of each human being and how we are all connected. And maybe that's my purpose. And if that's uh, what it is, and I'm okay with that. You know? Oh, that's, that's wonderful, Rob. And it really resonates what you're saying because I've had understandings in moments of my life that resonate with that because what I've realised is if I hang on to negative emotions or unforgiveness or grievances, that is in some way blocking what I'm meant to do. I can't do the good things if I'm holding on to that. It, it becomes a, like a wall that's there and it, I, must, I must break that down in order to let the light in or let the light out, maybe. Well, both, you know, and it's really <laughs> funny that you use that metaphor as a wall, because as I was thinking about your questions and, and considering all these things, I actually wrote that metaphor down. Oh, did you? That, yes, I did. <laughs> that we, we build this wall. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, to protect ourselves because we don't want to be hurt. Uh, but it's all about learning how to, let that, we all have a light and a gift that we were given. And I think that frustration, anger, hatred, anxiety, all of these things come from not allowing ourselves and being afraid to express that gift. Whether that gift mm -hmm. is being the best housewife or the best father or the, you know, the best at your job, whatever that, whatever that gift is, which is purpose, we, we have to be able to express it uh, or else we just, we get very, very confused, very yes. lost. We, we stumble around in the darkness. Yes. And physical illness is often a way that that manifests to that, that stumbling. And as you, yes. as you well know as well, Rob. So on the eve of your near death experience, it is as if the dam of your memory broke as you write in the book. And there was a storm raging outside your hospital window <laughs> You were very, very unwell. 
but you had all of these reflections that we've just been talking about now. In a way, they came back to you. And it was like a sort of a deathbed reckoning, a, a sort of a scene of a deathbed reckoning, an extended one as, as a reader. That's, that's how I read it. So yes. tell us about what you experienced in that moment and how it led into your NDE. Great question, because, you know, that, what, what that dam of memory was is that all the, all the when, when you're in, and, and you've seen this, when we're, when we're in our weakest moments, um, and here I was again, you know, I was told that I had prostate cancer and, and I was, I was going to die and um, my heart was, was, you know, not going to, not going to make it. And I was on that eve of, you know, right, that darkness right before the light, right? <laughs> so, what happened to me was, is that, and I think that there's, I think dark forces, by the way, Karina, I think they're very real. You know, some, in some religious beliefs, you can, you can call it the dark one, you can call it Lucifer, you can call it whatever it is, but, but the darkness is very real. I've learned that and fear is very real in these moments. And when that dam broke loose, the darkness uses these weak moments in our lives to break us down and to draw everything that we've ever done, mistakes in the past, our deepest and darkest fears, we start to draw those things to us like a magnet. And that's what fear does. And that's what happened to me when, you know, the, the images of that, of that deformed boy in my childhood that- Tell us that story quickly, Rob, just, yeah, if you could for the listeners. Sure. Um, when I was a child, my mother had taken me to a store to shop for clothes for school and um, playing around like any kid was. And, you know, back then we had these big carousels with shirts and pants on it. And I was twirling around and my mother was standing beside me and she was looking for, for something for me to go to school. And, and as, I came, as I came around this little carousel, I found myself face to face with this this deformed boy, I had, I had never seen anything like it. It looked like someone had dunked his, his head in boiling oil. I mean, his, his flesh was just all red and, and shriveled up and his, you know, his ears looked like tiny little seashells hanging off of him. His mouth was a little slit, you know, his, he had no nose. Um, it was the most grotesque and horrifying thing that I'd ever seen in my life. And I, my blood just froze and, and I, I was standing there staring at him. I mean, he was, we were nose to nose. I could smell his breath. And I didn't realize at that age what birth defects were and, and things like that. And I, I never realized how this boy was being treated in society and his mother was being treated. And it was, it was, it was just, all of it was horrible. And um, I had standing there, I just, I even just, you know, wet myself as a child and, I was frozen and paralyzed, shaking, and I turned white. And his mother turned around and saw what I was doing, and you know, and she looked at me like I had just committed murder or something, and uh, you know, stared down at me. And uh, and she grabbed her son and she said, "Let's go home." And my mother realized what was happening, and she and she dropped to her knees and grabbed my shoulders and shook me, you know, gently. And she said, "Do you understand what you've just done? You know, can you imagine how that?" boy feels and how his mother feels. And, you know, that was like a, a watershed moment for me in my childhood. You know, I, I felt like I had just, again, you know, committed murder or something. 
And that memory had haunted me for into my adulthood. I used to have dreams of that boy's face. Um, and that was just one of the things that came to me. So that night when the, when the storm came and his face seemed to push through the window and like a hologram, that was the beginning of the darkness drawing all these fears to me. I, all the mistakes that I had made in my life had come in and they were, they were washing over me. And so these, these feelings of unworthiness and fear and all of that started to culminate. And it was like, a, uh, as I say in the book, it was like I was being baited by a specter and I was being reminded of all of the things that, um, that I, all the mistakes that I had made and, and that terrible moment uh, in, in Los Angeles with my daughter, which I'd rather probably save for the book, but all of these things were, were, were brought down on me. And it felt like after, you know, 20 years of, of fighting for my daughter's life and living, living with, you know, no sleep and all of these things that my wife and I had gone through living in hospitals, we've lo we'd lost our pension, we'd lost all the money, we'd spent everything on Maria trying to find a cure. Now here I am, you know, trying to get a donor heart, they tell me I have cancer. It was, I just, I just resigned my spirit. I was just ready to die. I really didn't care. And it was in that moment that I was taken up into that timeless place. When I resigned my spirit, I screamed out in my, in my hospital room. I was dark and alone and I just screamed out, do with me what you will. And in that moment is when I was taken into that timeless place. Please go into that story and tell us about your, this most profound near-death experience, Rob. Mm. Certainly. So the best, the best way for me to describe this is in how I describe it in the book, <clears throat> is that when I, when I first entered that place, when I first entered that timeless place, I was standing in the middle of nowhere. And it was like looking outside uh, a window in an airplane on a clear day. You know, I'm sure when, you've, when you're in flight and you're, and you're looking out an airplane window, you can see everything, but there's nothing there at all. And that was kind of like my experience at first. In those first few seconds, however long that lasts, um, no one knows, but I was standing in the middle of nowhere. And I could, I could see myself down in my, in my green hospital gown with the, the heart pump machine pumping my heart and all the IV bags and needles coming out of me. And then I could see myself standing in the middle of nowhere with none of that on me and not feeling any pain whatsoever. Then it was like someone just picked up the grains of my being and threw them into a strong wind. And I found myself, it just felt like this, I expanded into this infinite timeless place. And all of a sudden, uh, I seemed to understand everything at once. It was like it was this, this massive download where I didn't even have to think about anything that I ever wanted to know because all the answers were already there. How the, how the, the universe was designed, how, what the creator used. I could see complex mathematical equations hanging in the air. And I was like, wow, this is so simple. You know, we, we make it, humans make it so difficult. We've been trying to figure this thing out and here it is. <laughs> all I have to do is observe and any question is already answered. 
And what was curious is that, you know, I, so I told you that I had in the book, I talk about how I saw the, the, um, the lives of some of the nurses that I had judged most harshly yes. about and made negative assumptions about. I had a quick review of their life in a regression of events, which was kind of curious. Their life had gone backwards. And when something, you know, negative or dark happened, like abuse or bad personal choices, it was like the, the, the trailer to the movie stopped for a millisecond. And I can see, you know, what happened in their life. And at the end of the review, there was like, I understood that these, these events that, hap that happened um, were the reason why they had become who they were. And it painted a portrait of who that person was. And I remember in that place saying to myself, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? And then I had a review of my own life and, and my own life mistakes. And I said the same thing, how could I have ever judged myself so harshly? And it was from there that I saw and became part of this interactive web that binds us all. And what it looked like to me, which is how this ties into the title of the book, is that it, it looked like the trillions and trillions and trillions of neurons that were woven together at, like a neuron in the brain. And, you know, in the, in the nucleus of each neuron is, a, is a, I saw like a little spark of light or what I've come to understand as a quark of light. And these, these quarks and these neurons were woven together, creating this tapestry of twinkling lights that seemed to hang on the ceiling of the universe. And I saw that we were all connected and that we were all one. And that if I hurt myself while I was in that place, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I loved, the light would spread. And I saw that there were dark parts of the web, which I've, I later talk about. I came to understand that later, what those dark parts of the web, some, some were dim, some were brighter than others, and some were completely dark. Uh, but this is where I came to, to understand how all of our actions affect another and how we are all connected. And while I was in that place, this is the most you know, to me personally, this was like the most beautiful moment of that whole experience in the ethereal. I get very emotional about this. I'm going to try to make it through it. But um, I saw my daughter standing in the middle of nowhere, perfect and whole and radiant. And that light, that beautiful light that animates all life, that spiritual light, the same light that animates our lives was shining brightly through her. And in the ethereal, at least my experience, I know other people have different experiences, but speech, there was no speech. There was no taste or smell or touch. Thoughts were communicated kind of like telepathically. They were, they were, they were sensed and felt and absorbed and you knew someone else's thoughts in an instant. So there was no language. And actually this was the most difficult part of the book for me to write this chapter into the ethereal. I spent probably a year trying to fit because there's no language for it. And I spoke into that vastness in that unspoken language of the ethereal. And I asked Maria, I said, Maria, you know, how I've longed to know your voice and how, how I want to know your thoughts. And um, 
I told her that, you know, I, I just want to hear you say, I love you one time. And I told her, you know, we've taken you everywhere. And I don't know what to do for you when you're suffering. And she looked at me and, and she said, just love me. And when she said that, that was the first time. <clears throat> That was the first time in my life that I had, I, I felt free and forgiven. And I knew that um, I didn't have to heal her because it, it, it was something that only God can do. And that, that love is all she really needed for me to love her and care for her. That didn't mean that I had to give up and not continue to try to heal her and do the best that I could for her. But it, it took the burden from me. And it was when she said that, that I, I said, I never want to leave this place. And I heard that echo back to me in that, in that space. And when I said, I never want to leave this place, that's when I found myself back in my bed. And I heard the heart machine pumping my heart again and began to feel all the pain again in my body. So that was my... Um, that was my second and most profound near-death experience. Rob, that is just astounding. And I'd like to just unpack a few, a few aspects of it, please. So uh, firstly, in terms of chronology for our audience, this happened on uh, May 23, 2016. So a couple of months after you'd learnt you needed the heart transplant. So at this point, That's right. yes. you're yes. in the hospital. You're, were you battling the pneumonia at that point? Well, what happened was, is that, see, that's the other thing. So when I, when I had the heart pump installed in me, um, there was, it, it had nothing to do with the pump itself, but it had to do with just the series of events because I had become so emaciated uh, from living in the hospital. You know, I had lost all of my muscle tone and I had lost a tremendous amount of weight. I was kind of a skeleton of a human being. And when you lay in a bed for six months, you know, you, you're, you're prone to get ammonia very easily, even though I was walking around the hospital and trying to, trying to take care of myself the best I could, but I got pneumonia and they had to pierce my side with a, a drainage tube. And I had uh, what they thought was a blood infection, which it really wasn't a blood infection. So for weeks and weeks on end, they were hitting me with massive amounts of IV antibiotics. And I was nauseated the whole time, throwing up the whole time, couldn't eat. And, and so they did every test in the world because they were convinced that, that I had, because I had a very high fever, that I had blood infection, which of course I couldn't get transplanted. And then that led to pneumonia. I had the drainage tube in my right side and that further weakened me. So all of these things led up to that night when I resigned my spirit. And then it was, yeah, it was shortly after that, that uh, in, on June 6th, that my donor heart arrived. Mm. And we're about to go into that. But before we do, I just want to just go over your, your, this most profound NDE of yours in a little more, more detail, please, Rob. Oh, sure. So firstly, the thing that strikes me is it's so extraordinary that it all unfolded after you'd resigned your spirit, you'd, you'd given that ultimate surrender 
And that's so interesting considering, you know, your earlier revelations about the extreme self-reliance that you were prone to and, and how that was ultimately, you know, not, not helping you or your loved ones, you know, even though you thought that you were doing the right thing. So it's so interesting that this experience unfolded after you, you gave that ultimate surrender and what an amazing experience. So the first thing I want to ask is whether that information that you, that incredible download that you received and the mathematical equations and the understanding of the design whether you were able to retain any of that after the experience. That's the most frustrating part of the whole experience. Because while I was there, you know, in these are some of the things that you mentioned to me and which happened afterwards, some of these downloads that were, and we'll get to that. But while I was in that place, because you know, before I before I saw the web and became part of the web, it was, you know, I heard it was placed on my spirit that. This is your. This is your real identity. I am. This is. This is divine source. All of those things. I did not see, which I was disappointed in. I did not see uh, a divine being. I did not see God. Instead, God chose to express the divine intelligence as concepts that I that I wholly understood in that place. And when I when I first came back out of that experience and found myself in my bed it was amazing to me how quickly some of those details were escaping me. How can I possibly know these things through some sort of spiritual osmosis or going into this, into this realm and then coming back and not knowing any of the details? Uh, that was incredibly frustrating for me, but I had to resign myself to whatever the details were that I was able to retain. Then I would have to just go off of that when it was placed on my spirit to tell my story. Yes, know? and it's not uncommon for people who've experienced near-death experiences to have that a similar kind of experience to what you've reported, this download of the ultimate information, the ultimate answer to every question, and know it all in that space, but then they don't retain it. And it seems yeah. that we just retain, you know, what's necessary for us to be able to communicate our stories. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, obviously that web represented, the message was very strong when I was in that place of unity, of oneness, of how we are all connected, how that was all put together, how the creator uses these things and and how it all works, that all was gone. And it's simple. I love that you said it was simple. I've heard that before too. People go, oh, it's so simple. We're the ones that mess it up and complicate it. So simple. Oh, so very simple. Yeah. Absolutely. The other fascinating aspect is the nurses. And these were some cranky nurses that you'd obviously thought, you know, not to, not to what you hadn't warmed to. And it's so fascinating how you were taken into their lives and taken to the moments, it seems, that what was like a fork in the road that changed them and, and made them, you know, I guess you, you can say harden their heart or, or put this veil of pain over them that made them act in, and behave in a certain way. You saw that. You saw those moments. Good way to put it. How, you know, those moments that hardened their heart or changed them. And that's really important to understand because it all, com- it all comes along with this judgment thing. You know, how many times... I know I have. I've judged someone because of uh, uh, how angry they are or some of the actions, some of the things that they do in their lives that really make no sense to me whatsoever. You know, what's driving this person to make that kind of decision? 
well, while I think we're all called to overcome those things and evolve, everybody is on their own path. And we can't, you know, force anyone to evolve faster than what they're meant to be. So judgment is a very uh, difficult thing that we all have to try to work hard to get over because I tell you, some of the things that I saw really slapped me in the face and made me realize even about myself that it's probably one of the most, uh, it's probably one of the most unflattering parts of being human, how we judge. And my daughter Maria has taught me a lot about that, about judging, because the world has treated her for the most part very unkind and how, you know, children or anyone that's different and has special needs, uh, how they're judged. And of course, that goes back to your moment in the store as a very small boy and that poor little deformed boy, you know, so that right. was your, your first experience of that. It's, it's very fascinating so. synchronicity given what happened later in your life, your own daughter's birth and her, her challenges. And now these, I want to say life review, but it's like you, there were two, there were the nurses that you saw their lives reviewed, which is so amazing. And then your own. So what were some of those moments, Rob, that, that you experienced in the life review that slapped you in the face, as you said? Yeah. So, you know, like, for example, some of the nurses, whether they were uh, oh, like, for example, overweight, let's say, okay, uh, and had tattoos and piercings and things like that. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, you're supposed to be all about health and you're a nurse and here you are taking care of me. Meanwhile, <laughs> you know, you're obese. So what's wrong with this picture here? And you make these judgments. And wow, when, and then when I, what I saw and how some of those things related to that particular individual in their childhood or a medical problem that has caused them to be this way, it really, like you say, slapped me in the face and straightened me up about judging people. And, and in my own life, uh, some of the things that I'm deeply ashamed about that I did with Maria, I talk about a little bit of that. And that's, that's in that also that the darkness chapter where the fear, you know, brought all of these things on me at once and used all of my mistakes and uh, things like that to, to break my spirit. But, you know, I'm, I've done some things for, for Maria be out of desperation that were so cuckoo that when I think about them now and some of the people that I took her to, uh, thank goodness. I mean, I never did anything that I knew that would hurt her, but to think that I, that I wasted money and time and energy on things like that is just now looking back on it is just my goodness gracious. What in the world were you thinking? There was, so, a, there was a faith healer that, yeah, that really disappointed you because he taught, he told you that she would be speaking in the morning. It was yeah. that amazing story you tell, and then she didn't speak, and it led you to a, a kind of a breakdown on the on the beach, I think. Well, that was a culmination of many, Karina, that I'm ashamed to talk about. So there were, there were many, many healers that uh, I took Maria to uh, out of desperation. And see, that's another thing, how the darkness encroaches on our judgment, you know, when we're desperate. That's another uh, part of judging. Sometimes people have nowhere to run, and they make decisions that they know are going to hurt them in the long run. But in that moment, they've got no choice. Just with the dark parts of the web that you saw. So you saw this, this astonishing web of life and the, the yes. points of light, the quarks of light. And there were some parts that were dim. There were others that were completely dark. 
you do go into that in the book about what you understood those to be. Did you want to share a little bit about that now, Rob? Sure, sure, I could talk about that. And it, it's, it's part of that, you know, that whole process, this, this uh, what I call this unfolding that took place while I was writing the book and doing my research and things like that. But um, I came to understand, in, in my opinion, that those, those darker parts of the web were places where human beings weren't emanating light. And, you know, it's, this is where I think that purpose comes into play a little bit. This is where I think that these watershed moments in our life come into play where we lose track of our purpose and we don't fulfill what it is that we, we are to do. This is where I think violence and hatred and things like that come into play. Um, and this is where free will comes into play. You know, we, we, have, we have free will to make the right choices. Sometimes we always don't. And that's where I think some of those places where I saw those quarks of light, which that each quark I came to understand, at least in, in, my, in my experience, represented a human life. That spark of light, we're all born with that spark of light. And that's the spiritual light that animates our life. And as we go through life, there are things that get in a way that darken our spirit when we make bad choices. The web is nothing more than a reflection of our choices here on earth. And the web I came to understand really represents the light and dark struggles of humanity throughout all the ages. And so those things are all tied together. You know, the choices we make and how that reflects on the web in our spiritual life and how it reflects back to us here. And because it's a web, as you said earlier in another one of your realizations, what we do to ourselves, we do to another as well. So that's that incredible interconnectedness that is a major feature of your NDE. Absolutely. You know, that was one of the most profound. When I was there, I understood that if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I loved, the light would spread. And it's no different here. It's the same thing. Yes, in the temporal only, world. If only we could remember that in every moment. And that's, that's the work, I think. That's work. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're back in your body and what. Unfortunately. Happened... <laughs> and what happens then? I decided that, that first of all, it was placed on my spirit that part of my purpose was to, to write the book was to share the story. And so it all came together. You know, it seemed to all culminate in that moment that this is the reason why I was brought back. But, you know, it was kind of like, um, and it's hard to describe this because in one, in one way, I was completely free in that moment, even though I felt like that I had a mission now, and this was part of my purpose, that to live and to, and to get the word out when I was able. But there was another part of me that didn't really care whether or not that happened I was so free in that moment. I wanted to go back to the ethereal. I wanted to see my daughter whole and perfect and radiant. And I wanted to be part of that interconnectedness where I thought that loneliness was just an illusion. And I still think it is even here on earth. I think that loneliness is an illusion because we're all connected. So it was, it was, it was this, this complex series of thoughts that I was grappling with in that moment and I really couldn't express to anyone. And 
that's why everybody, my wife, my brothers, everybody was saying, you know, he's not going to make it. He's going to die. And, uh, and I knew they were wrong. And I knew the perfect heart would arrive at the right time um, to save me. But I was at peace with uh, either, either thing happening. It was mm. kind of strange. And one thing that's another, well, I say one thing, there's so many things fascinating about your story, but it wasn't your first encounter with a kind of beautiful life-sustaining light because when you were a baby in your cot, you saw something. I did. And you know, it's funny, uh, Karina, this is an interesting story. And I, and I think it's an important one for those who want to share their story because the, my, one of my editors said, you need to take that entire chapter out of the book because um, nobody is going to resonate with that. It doesn't have anything to do with the story. It actually has everything to do with the story. Absolutely. Um, because as a child, and, and you know, in this, I won't spoil the, the ending of the book for, for your audience because it all comes full circle in the end, as you know, and it all ties together. But, you know, as a child and, you know, and, and after this happened, I've spoken to many people that have had very similar experiences because as children, I think that veil between the temporal world and the spiritual world, are, it's very thin. Yes. Um, you know, I, you, talk to, you talk to doctors that have experience with children that uh, have almost lost their lives. And it's amazing. Their NDEs are just incredibly profound and detailed because they remember what it was like in the spirit before you know, we, get, we just get inundated with the complexities of life. But what happened to me in the crib as a child is that I, I was uh, raised in a very, in a very humbling, you know, home. My, my father and my mother were Italian immigrants and my father worked in a steel mill and we had, there were four boys um, and we, we were in a small two bedroom house and I was the, the, the youngest of the four. And in my crib one night, uh, I was laying on my, on my back, which I, was my favorite sleeping position with my hands beside my head, open to the world. And I began to see this, what I call a glowing orb come down and it, it kind of seeped through the ceiling at first and it kind of hovered above the ceiling. And it was unlike a light that I had ever seen uh, in my childhood. And it wasn't like a light bulb or the reflection of the moon or anything, it was a, a very curious light. And it hovered above the ceiling for a while and I was afraid to move, but I was delighted to see it as a child. And then it began to descend and very slowly drop down from the ceiling. And about halfway down, it took the shape of a, ha of a hand. It was a white kind of transparent hand and it began to descend down and it placed itself in my right hand. And when that happened, um, I just sprang to my feet and grabbed the rails of my crib and I began shaking them and laughing hysterically, uh, a wholehearted laugh that only a child you know, could, could, could do because children don't know anything about what's happening and everything is welcomed you know, in, that, in that place. And my parents started grumbling something in Italian and they thought I was just dreaming and um, they rolled back over and went to sleep. But that experience uh, stayed with me throughout my entire childhood. 
and into my adulthood, I grappled with what in the world, and I never could share it with anybody besides my mother, because everybody would think I was crazy. But it was a, a moment that uh, I, I came to understand now, have, having died, and that's when I figured out what it was, you know, it was, uh, it was spirit. It was that spark of light I talk about, that quark that all of us are born with. And I was just blessed to see it, you know? And when my father passed away, uh, he died in a very unfortunate accident in the steel mill. I had thought that my father was my identity. And that light that I experienced that came into my being and infused my entire being and became part of me was really the only thing that got me through his death and the coming years and the hardships that, uh, that my family went through. I knew there was something inside me. I knew it had to be otherworldly and spiritually. And I never wanted to uh, share it with anyone because it was the only thing that I kind of held on to as a child. And uh, like I say, it was kind of interesting that I had to die to figure out at 56 years old what it was. <laughs> Amazing. It was like listening to you share that it's like you were given a little taste, a little sampler, a little trailer of, of yes. the full, <laughs> the full <laughs> movie <laughs> that would come. And yes, and your dad passed away when you were five, I think, Rob, is that right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it was yeah. something given to you perhaps, what, three years prior to your dad's passing? Were you about two when you had that experience? Yep, I was about two or three years old yeah. when that happened. So, yeah, it was, um, it was given to me to, and I think it happens to, I think it happens to everyone. You know, some of the, uh, some of the doctors that I've talked to in my journey, actually, Dr. Corbier, who was the, the doctor that, that wrote the forward, had a very similar experience when he was a child. His, he's actually Haitian, and his parents are, um, are missionaries. And they had, they had come from Haiti to do missionary work in New York City. And he remembers running through the streets of New York City as a five or six-year-old lad. And he fell into a construction uh, manhole that was being dug. And he said that he fell into this hole and he just kept falling, 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 falling. And all of a sudden he remembers this light coming up from under his feet and picking him up and tossing him back onto the, onto the road. Wow. <laughs> so, I love those stories. And there are, there are many of them. You hear about oh yes. people drowning and it, what feels like an enormous hand. It actually feels like a hand will push them to the shore just those extraordinary things where matter is manipulated very easily, it seems. Yeah. Where matter isn't, you know, you bring up an excellent point because, um, and I know we'll get to this later, but while we're on that subject, what I came to understand about, and that's the title of the book, what I came to understand and researched about quarks was that, see, quarks are the tiniest building blocks of matter. They're invisible. And there are many different kinds of quarks. I think, I think physicists have identified six of them. But these quarks combine and create a multitude of possibilities. They combine to create whether something is going to be a tree, a dog, or a person. And they're made of light. Mm. And I came to understand that these quarks must be what the creator uses 
um, to, to create. And because when I was in that ethereal and I was in that place, I realized that all things were one and that the creator used the same, the same matter, the same stuff to create. And I think that quarks and, and of course, we're learning new things every day. Um, we're discovering new, new, new galaxies every day. But I really believe that that light uh, is the cornerstone of, of physics and matter and what the creator must use to, to manifest these things. So let's talk about your heart transplant. So two weeks later, you had your heart transplant in what the doctor said to you was the nick of time. And what's interesting is you knew the right heart for you, Rob. Incredibly risky thing to do, but... We know when Dr. Uriel came to me and he said, look, uh, I don't know when the right heart is going to come, but I'm really concerned because even with the pump, everything that we've done to keep you alive, we're running out of time here. And he said, there's a heart coming available. It's, it's very small. He said, you, you might get five, six years out of it, um, but I have to offer it to you because you're at that, you're at that critical stage now. And I thought about it. And something didn't feel right about that heart. And I thought to myself, you know, if uh, everything that I've learned about faith and spirit up to this point, I'm going to put it to the test. And uh, I told him, I'm going to pass. And he just kind of <laughs> rolled his eyes and said, you know, okay, <laughs> up to you. But, yeah. Did it ever strike you that Uriel is the name of one of the archangels. I didn't actually realize this. I, I read Uriel and that's your amazing Dr. Dr. Uriel. And I thought that sounds familiar and I looked it up and, and I found out it's apparently, um, he represents wisdom or God's wisdom. Did you know that, yeah. Rob? No, but here's what, I'm gonna, here's what I'm gonna share with you, um, which is really uncanny. So here's what it is. And when you, when you said this, because I, I told my wife about it before, before I came on, after I got your notes and I was preparing and we both got chills. And I've never talked about this with anyone. It, I didn't talk about it in the book. But here's what's curious about this, Karina, and it's interesting that you picked up on this. Um, about, well, let's see, Maria was about 13 years old. And my wife was actually in Dr. Corbier's clinic one day because Dr. Corbier has been Maria's pediatric neurologist for a very long time. And she was in clinic one day and Maria was not with her. And there was this uh, mother that brought in a highly functioning autistic boy. He was nine years old. And my, and my wife was in the lobby waiting for Dr. Corbier and she began to chat with this mother. And the mother said, um, Yes, she says, you know, these kids, sometimes they've got special gifts. And my wife said, well, what is it? What do you mean? And she said, well, from a very young age, my son was able to see angels. And my wife said, oh, really? That's interesting. And she said, uh, so she started to talk to this young man who would stand up when, uh, when he talked, and then he would make eye contact with you, and then he would look down and, and look up. And, and she asked him, she said, well, you know, we, we have always thought that uh, Maria's angel, archangel, was, um, was Michael. 
because uh, you know Michael's one of the one of the uh, uh, the most the, the most powerful archangels, and he looked down at the ground, and he looked back at my wife, and she and he said, "No, silly, Maria's uh, angel is not Michael. Maria's angel is Uriel." So here we are, all these years later. And I talk about this in the book, that day when Dr. Uriel called me from Chicago when he was in the lab working on another patient and he introduced himself. I hung up the phone because it was one of those twilight zone moments that, you know, here I am ready to be executed, right? <laughs> some, some being calls me up at the last minute, my stay of execution and says, come to Chicago and I'll transplant you in three to four months. And I hung up the phone and I said, Melanie, I just got a call from this doctor, Dr. Uriel in Chicago, said he transplanted me in three to four months. What do you think? And, you know, she, she hesitated and she, I said, look, we, we need to get on the, you know, to call American Airlines and get a ticket and, and go to Chicago. And so she's, you know, walking around the house and thinking about this thing and all of a sudden it hit her. I didn't, I had no idea. I didn't realize this. And she came into my room and she said, can this possibly be a sign that this is the right thing for us to do and go to Chicago? And then she told me the story, which I didn't know. This autistic boy, and I kind of rolled my eyes and I said, Melanie, that's a bit of a stretch, you know, um, to try to link these two together. And she said, no, 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 I'm telling you, I think it's a sign. And I, we actually hadn't thought about that for years until you, you uh, made the correlation in your notes before you had me on today. Incredible. It really is so amazing. And uh, for the audience, it's just to give context to what Rob just said, it's all laid out in the book and it's, it's quite an amazing story. But essentially, you were all set up to go with a different cardiologist and a different plan of care and something that was quite safe. And you felt very fortunate to have been able to secure all of this. And then at the very, very last minute, through a whole other set of amazing circumstances, this Dr. Uriel literally called you from out of the blue, offering you another way to go. And that's what, what I just want to make clear to the listeners, that it was so surprising and quite miraculous, really. Unbelievably miraculous, because I was... You're right, I was set to go to Duke University Hospital here in North Carolina, even though it was not what I wanted to do because their option was to put me in diapers for 40 days and the, the heart pump that they wanted to, to use on me had to go up into my leg uh, and I wouldn't be able to move. And after 40 days, if a heart didn't come, they would have to put me in another device, which I absolutely made a decision not to do because it's, for, for a lot of reasons, it saves some people's lives. But after I researched this device, I realized that only 35% of people ever get transplanted once they get that device in them. And for a lot of reasons, I couldn't care for Maria, I couldn't work. So I decided I couldn't, there's no way that I could possibly live with that device after what I'd gone through. So the, the option was pretty grim actually to go to Duke, um, but it was the only option I had. And then, I get this call out of the blue from Dr. Uriel. Uh, it's, it's Maria's <laughs> angel. To come to Chicago. <laughs> oh, wow. And so, Rob, there's an amazing uh, story that follows your heart transplant. And it's about how you finally made contact with the donor's father, which is something you really wanted to do. 
And obviously we're contracting what is a long and complicated and wonderful story, but and then some incredible moments of synchronicity unfolded. Now, I, I encourage everyone who's listening to, to really just read it in, in Rob's book because we can't really do it justice in the time we have. But could you offer us a taste of what happened there with finding out about your donor heart and the identity of the young woman who made the ultimate gift? Yeah. Incredible um, experience, Karina. I, I met this gentleman. Uh, I had flown to Chicago and uh, drove an hour to meet him at a Denny's actually, uh, a coffee shop. And the set of circumstances were so amazing. And, and the, like you say, the synchronicities, because as it turned out, it was a young woman who was born three months before my daughter, Maria. And she loved special needs children. Um, and she had an affinity for reaching out to special needs children. And she always stood up for them. She stood up to bullies. She, her name was uh, Molly. And she uh, had, she was known for her big heart. And she spelled her name M-O-L-L-I. And she always, from a young child, always dotted her I in the shape of a heart, which is on her gravestone. But what was curious about it as I, I met her father and he began to unveil some of the details of her life and some of her gifts is that she was a natural born artist, um, very much like my mother was who never took a lesson. And as I began to look through some of her drawings, I came to realize that her favorite flower was a daisy and she drew daisies and actually she had a daisy tattooed on her arm and my father's favorite flower was a daisy. And he grew daisies all around our, our, our garden back home when I was growing up. And there's like this, there's this picture of my father that has been passed down for generations after generation of him kneeling behind his daisies, uh, this big row of daisies with the garden behind him because he was surrounded by them yeah. and Molly, had this thing tattooed on her shoulder, on her, on her arm and was buried with it. And she also had other pictures in there of, of birds. Uh, and it was uncanny. All of her work was black and white pencil sketches, which is exactly what my mother used to draw. And both of them were so uncanny, the likeness between the two drawings. Um, and then, you know, this Daisy with my father and her being born, you know, three months before Maria and the affinity that she had towards special needs children. And it was just so overwhelming uh, to, to be in that moment with him and then having to go to the celebration of life and having the stethoscope with, with the iPad uh, tied to, to my heart so they could see actually Molly's heart beating was just, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. You know, it, it was just a, it was just a surreal moment in time where Molly gets to live on through me and continues to express through me and the love that she had. And it carries on, you know, for me to help my daughter, Maria. And I found out through this journey that there, there are no coincidences in life. I've come to understand that coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. That's the only way that I can explain it. That's so beautiful. And this lovely young woman 
had entered a period of darkness and sadly taken her own life, which ties back in with your deathbed encounter with your brother-in-law who seven weeks prior to that medical crisis that launched this whole adventure for you, Rob, he had also taken his life. And yeah. he asked you in that moment, and it's so amazing how you describe being pulled up. I mean, I've read scenes like that. I've read about things like that when people do actually end up passing and they confound the doctors and the people around them because they should not be able to physically do that. And yeah. you did that in that moment. And Frosty told you that he'd messed things up, but he wanted you to let the family know. You Did, did you end up doing that? Oh, absolutely. I, You know, that... When I was able to come out of coma, um, I asked to see my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. And when I told them that, you know, it gave them tremendous solace mm. that, uh, you know, that Frosty wanted to give that message to them. And, you know, even now, uh, as, as lovely as that moment was, and after experiencing what Molly did and the gift of life that she's given me to carry on, I sensed that both of them had deep, deep, deep amounts of regret for what they've done. Uh, and, and that's really part of this unmet, this message to unpack in the book about, and it, and it goes back to what I, what I experienced in the ethereal, that if, I, that if I hurt myself, I hurt everything around mm. me. But if I love, the light would spread. And they did, they did you know, deep damage to uh, their respective families and friends and uh, left a lot of collateral damage behind. So there's nothing good that comes from suicide. As you said, though, it's it's so beautiful that now Molly continues in you. Molly continues yeah. in you. <laughs> she can express that purpose, and we touch again on on purpose and the and the meaning of life being our purpose and expressing that light, which you can equate to purpose. Yeah. 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 There's a part of me that wonders. You know, it's far fetched as it is. Maybe that was part of her purpose, to give yeah. me her heart. We can't know it from this, our perspective of this 3D reality. We can only see the, the barest scrap of the full picture, as right. you well know from having travelled to the ethereal. But So, Rob, a big part of your story has to do with these incredible messages and downloads that you received, both during the NDE, which we've touched on, and afterward. And there's an amazing part of your book where it's like you're obsessed with these, these messages that are coming to you and you've got these giant stick-on post-it notes all around your walls and you're madly scribbling on them. Tell us about those, those messages and maybe share a couple of, I mean, you've already shared lots of amazing ones, thank you, but maybe share a couple of the ones that have really stayed with you and impacted you. Well, and I and the one you identified really, I think, is a great one to to speak to speak to Karina, the, the 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 power of a single act. And I'm still learning about the power of a single act, but I found that to be, in addition to understanding some of the things that came to me then, that everything in the universe is one, um, and everything is created from the same stuff, quarks possibly. I learned that from these downloads that our real identity comes from God. Uh, our intrinsic value comes from God. Uh, I learned that the brain does not create reality. That, and we can't create anything. That everything's already been created. We can observe, but our brain does not create reality or consciousness. It exists. 
and it comes from divine source. Um, those are some of the downloads that I that I received afterwards, and I was grappling with going crazy because in that period, I had to live near the hospital for a year because the hospital is responsible if you if the heart rejects. So that first year after a heart transplant is the most critical. So most of the time I was there alone, which I also find to be very uh, ironic because that's where I was able to start to come to terms with these things. That's also where I fell into uh, a depression of not wanting to be there and kind of grappling with the incongruence from what I was seeing back here in the temporal world versus what I experienced in the ethereal. I had really had a difficult time coming to terms with that. And I didn't know where I belonged for a very long time. Um, but to, to, to your point about, you know, the, the power of a single act and, and what I think that came to represent is that I learned that how we serve others, the power of a single act is really how we connect with God's love and light. And it's easy for us to say, I'm going to pray for somebody but it's very different when the, we use the power of a single act to actually transform our thoughts and feelings into taking action towards something. And, and that comes in a lot of different ways. It comes in, you know, um, being kind to someone else or doing something. I use the example of, uh, of Paul, my superior, who became a very good friend during that time and, you know, brought me to church and took me on walks and, and did all these things with me where he took a lot of risks to do that. More importantly, the power of a single act is about free will and how we use our free will, because I believe that while prayer is an energetic form of communicating with spirit, and it's very important, I, I meditate and I pray every morning. That's how I start my day. But it's another thing to take that and to put it into action by serving others, whether it's like I do with my daughter, Maria. There was uh, Dr. Juvenandan, actually, who was the, 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 the surgeon who put my heart in. He follows a, uh, 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 an Indian guru called um, Sai Baba. And it was actually Dr. Juvenandan, who's a very spiritual man, who transplanted me, he's transplanted, I think, up to 1,500 people now, including his own wife. Nice. But he, he, he's learned um, some very interesting things from, from uh, this Sai Baba. And it's ironic that I was invited to one of his lectures last week, right before our, our podcast. And he talks about the five things that he learned from Sai Baba. And I never, I never knew this, but they kind of tie into my experience. And he said... These are the five things that he learned from Sai Baba. And this relates to what I was talking about, about the power of a single act. He learned that hands that serve are holier than lips that pray. He learned that you control your actions, but the outcomes are determined by God. He learned to eliminate the ego. He learned that universality exists and that everything happens for a reason. And the fifth thing he learned from Sai Baba was that everyone is God's instrument. So, and of course, that goes back to purpose and gifts and all of those things that we talked about, right? Mm 
But the power of a single act has a lot to do with free will. It has a lot to do with purpose. It has a lot to do with those dim parts of the web that I saw. Because as you could see, some of the other doctors that I talk about on my journey, particularly uh, Dr. Patel, the woman that didn't give up on me that night. Um, and when I met her later <clears throat> and asked her if it was God that saved my life or she that saved my life along with the other two doctors, she said, well, I think ultimately God saved your life, but guess what? I had to act. I'm the one that had to stand there for 20 minutes and pump your chest and, and do all these things. The hands and that serve. The hands that had to serve, right? It, so mm -hmm. she said, free will. It's all about free will and what we choose to do. There's just so much in what you just said. Firstly, it's astounding that you, you were blessed along your journey to have a team of medical experts who, and this would seem quite rare from what I've heard, who are, who are spiritual and openly spiritual. And, I mean, that's not common. I don't oh, think. Karina, <laughs> you know, uh, for the past 20 years, I've taken my daughter all around North America. And I can tell you that maybe one or two doctors, and we've been everywhere that I've bumped into that had a spirituality-based practice. Typically physicians, you know, they, they, they're following a set of uh, doctrine or rules that they learned in medical school. And they're, they're going by the things that they learned and not so much their instincts or relying on spirit to guide them. But how in the world I fell into from the beginning, you know, the three doctors that saved my life that night to a Dr. Uriel and a Dr. Juvenandin and uh, the Rev along the way and all these other characters mm. that have been part of this story. I mean, if God's not in this, I don't know who is because I don't know how it all happened, right? It really is amazing. And, and, Right at the end there, that for you to share those five points that Dr. Juvenandon learned from Sai Baba and really they're five points that ultimately reflect your story. Like, you know, we just throw our hands up. Like, you couldn't speak yeah. this. <laughs> you couldn't. And one thing I want to pick up on, so obviously you're a man of faith now, Rob, but it wasn't always like that, I don't think. And what was your relationship with the divine God the idea of that, that higher power at the time that you got sick, because I know that you've had, you were obviously from Italian Catholic family, so you had that foundation, but I know that there were moments where you were, I mean, there's one point you were literally punching a, a picture of Jesus until, you know, you split your knuckles. You were so furious that your daughter was so very ill. So it's, a, it's quite the journey. Yeah, quite the journey. I, I, um, as you say, I was raised uh, Catholic, and actually two of my brothers were altar boys, uh, and, and my, my mother was a very spiritual woman. She, she wasn't dogmatic, but I had developed a, a very difficult relationship with God through Maria's illness, and uh, I, you know I fell into that trap, and it is a trap, uh, so I blame God for everything. And I've actually, at some point, difficult for me to say, but I actually developed a hatred uh, for God because particularly when we moved to LA and you know everything had failed, Maria had become a skeleton, unrecognizable as a human being, 
a short circuiting robot that, you know, just was just an incredible period in my life. And that's when, again, and that's when I let the darkness in. And that's when I fell for it all and got lost. And I was stumbling around in the dark for quite a long time. And thank, thank God I was, uh, and, I, and, I, and I say this, I don't know that I would have ever snapped out of that moment had it not been for the pastor on the plane that I met that, that had gone through the darkness in, in, in gone to places that none of us could even dream about. I talk about that in a book. Oh, that's right. Yes. And we have not had time to go into that today, but yes, yeah. So, so um, yes, but my, but, but, you know, my relationship with God had, had gone beyond uh, Rocky. Uh, so I was, I developed a hatred. I did. And um, thank goodness I, I was pulled out of that. But again, it was it was it was through Maria really that uh, that God spoke into my spirit, and you know this is where I see the value uh, of these children. Maria is the hero of my life. She's taught me what it's what it means to be human, and she is the vessel that God used to speak uh, through through her to me. So that was my first big revelation, but. But, but again, and this is something that humans deal with all the time, we lose faith pretty easily. And we have a tendency to forget about those things that happen in our life. And we go on with them and we dismiss them. And then so God decided to slap me down again and kill me this time. <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> Until I learned, right? So. Oh, wow. And how is Maria today? And how old is she today? She'll be 25 in May. Thank you for asking. And she's doing well. She's um, she's more alert and loving and uh, just full of life than I could have imagined. You know, she'll she'll always be uh, in that place. I think uh, until there's there are some medical advances that could help her because it's a it's a genetic uh, issue. But thank goodness that she, she's at least able to, with assistance, walk around and she eats well and she's not on a feeding tube and, you know, all the things that we've done for her have certainly paid off. Um, and, but more importantly, now I know in spirit who she really is, what she really is. And, and I can, I can live with the suffering and understand that uh, the best part of her is not being hurt. That's very beautiful, Rob. That is very beautiful. And I'm so glad to hear that she's doing well and walking around and she doesn't have the feeding tube. That is, that is such great news. So I'd like to circle back now to the NDE and you've covered this, I guess, but the title of your book, Quarks of Light. What did you want to immediately express with that? Tell us about calling your book Quarks of Light. Well, you know, I thought that, and particularly the image, and by the way, another coincidence I have to share with you, which I haven't talked about to anyone yet. Please. So the image on the cover of the book, the web, um, and those quarks of light all woven together. Uh, when, when, my, when my publisher went out, um, he uses a, uh, a service called 99designs. Probably everyone knows about this. And it's a, it's a global um, body of artists that, compete to give you the best cover. So you, you write a synopsis of the book and you send it out to the world uh, through this network of 99 designs. And these artists begin to compete on putting together the best cover that articulates your story. And so it takes, it's a four week process. 
and you have to go through and you know rate them and try to, to direct the artist into one way or another. But ironically, the, uh, the, the, the artist that we chose with that came up with the best cover design for the book happens to be Italian who lives in Rome, who was probably born about 20 miles from the same village that my parents were born in. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> you can't, can't write this stuff. Wow. And so Rob, please tell us where can people go, our audience, to learn more about you and to buy your wonderful book? Well, my book will be available on Amazon. And all they have to do is, uh, is go in and search for Quarks of Light, a near-death experience, or they can search by the author, which is Rob A. Gentile, um, and it'll, it'll pop right up. Wonderful. And do you have a website, Rob? I do. I do. My website is very simple. It's robagentile.com. So that's G. They can, they can learn more about the, uh, the book yep. there. Yep. It's not it's not an e-commerce site at this point, so they can't buy the book through that site, but um, that'll eventually change. But they can find the book on Amazon quite easily. Brilliant. And I've had a look at your website. It's it's a great website. Uh, so that's robagentile.com, did you say? Yes. Uh-huh. And that's yep. G-E-N-T-I-L-E. Yes, yes. So just to finish our conversation today, let's revisit your time in the ethereal. What when you think back to it and tell us about how often that happens, I wonder if it's daily or even, you know, hour by hour. But when you do think back to it, what is the image or thought that first springs to mind, like something that has deeply stayed with you about that? That's easy. Seeing Maria perfect and whole and radiant is, uh, is the first thing that comes to mind that ties back in with the theme of relationships, which is so profound in your book. And you, ma- you mentioned earlier, these doctors, you had people that didn't give up on you. So starting with Dr. Patel and all her heart compressions long after perhaps her colleagues thought that she was just wasting her time. And your brother, your brother features throughout the book as somebody who is constantly there by your side my oldest brother. Yeah, your oldest brother. And there's a real, there's a theme of that about the people in our lives being important. And it also goes back to that moment after the initial medical crisis where you went back into your home and realised that the relationships were neglected, so much was neglected. What do you want to share about the relationships? And, of course, Maria is front and centre here and your beautiful wife, Melanie, as well. But what, what do you want to maybe let our audience know about the key role of relationships in our lives? Well, I could tell you, I have learned that, and I used to depend on just myself. Um, I'm very self-reliant, but I've learned that through this journey of life, you can't do it alone. You know, you need, you need relationships in your life. You need to depend on one another, and uh, particularly in times of crisis, and to learn from one another and to appreciate one another. And this is the richness of life, and this is where the joy comes in. I've learned to appreciate Maria every moment of, of, uh, of her life now and my family more and my wife and, and friends. And those relationships are what carry us through those dark moments. You know, when we, when we get lost and we're stumbling around in the darkness, we rely on those people to, 
you know, pull us out and say, hey, you know, it's not all that bad. Remember this. And, and they, you know, they embolden us and, and inspire us. And that goes back to, you know, that we're all connected. Or that goes back to what I learned in the ethereal that number one, there's, we're all connected. Unity, oneness, our real identity comes from God. We're spiritual beings living inside fragile clay vessels. And, you know, if I had to say one thing that I would like to share about the ethereal, the choices we make on earth, I've, I've touched on this a bit that the web in the ethereal is a reflection of the choices that we make on earth and that we have free will to make the right choices. And those choices help create the future. And that's power of a single act, you know, that those acts that we do day in and day out to serve others and to connect with, with others and to love others and to express that love because God is love and light. And when we do that, when we choose to serve, that power of a single act kind of like takes on its own life and it spreads just like the love and light spreads that I, that I experienced in the ethereal. And I have to tell you that that is the beauty of life in the temporal world and what we have to understand with one another. Oh, that is just beautiful. Thank you so much, Rob. I cannot think of a better way to end our conversation than to leave listeners with that lovely message and such a profound message. And your book is incredibly, it's life-changing. It's a life-changing book. So I, I'm so grateful I got a chance to read it before publication. I wish you all the very best with it. And I think Oprah has to come knocking and the filmmakers. So I hope you know, <laughs> that, that all of that will be in your future and that that's the oh, future that kind. we're creating. <laughs> <laughs> you're very kind. I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me today, Karina. It has been an absolute joy. You're a marvellous interviewer, very prepared. It's been delightful. And uh, I'm going to follow you a lot more. Well, thank you. Likewise, I'll be following you. And please keep me posted on exciting developments. And, you know, perhaps we'll have you back on the show next year. And you can share, you know, because I feel like this is just the beginning, Rob. What do you think? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. It's part of my purpose. And um, I'd love to share it as much as I can. So I'd be delighted to come back and speak to you. That's so lovely. Well, thank you again for coming on Spirit Sisters. And uh, yeah, all the very best, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Music